Check your dial, folks. You didn't tune into Transylvania's public access station. No, sir. Tonight is Halloween. Halloween is Satan's night. The night of the devil. Reporter Frank Stewart has a special Halloween treat in store for viewers tonight. He'll be leading a group of paranormal experts to the infamous Weber House. Do you know what happened here in the Weber House? When people got killed, their son went haywire. Frank Stewart and his team of experts will conduct the first ever live on TV seance. Evil works in mysterious ways, Frank. It's unpredictable. Are there any spirits in the house? It's scary. That, that's far out. That far out. Something strange going on in this house. Animal mutilation, paranormal disturbances, devil worship. Wait, whoa, hold on. This is not stage. Hello? Is this the work of the devil? Folks, we are going where no camera crew has gone before. Father, perform the exorcism. This is not some Halloween prank. The grisly evidence of the supernatural is real. We'll be right back. You're watching the WMUF Halloween Special. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast that usually covers horror movie franchises one movie in one episode at a time. But for October, we are taking a break from the normal format and we are doing kind of what we would call staff picks. Like initially they were going to be all like Halloween themed movies. And then we even moved away from that just to really say like, fuck it, let's do whatever the hell we want in October. Because you know what? We've been good and we deserve a treat. So I am your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are you doing? You are... You can be brave. You can tell us how you're all feeling, man. You don't have to oh, lie to man. the audience and say you're doing great. <laughs> well, listeners, I'm feeling like shit, to be honest. But I am so excited about this episode. Uh, you know, like Mike said, you know, and obviously if you listen to the show, you already know this, but usually we tackle franchises, you know, with every episode being a different sequel. Uh, the good thing about that is we get to talk about our favorite franchises, you know, Halloween, Friday 13th, Phantasm, that stuff. The only downside is every once in a while, you know, we want to talk about like a one-off movie that we just really love. And that's what makes this episode so special, uh, special for me. The movie we're tackling tonight is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, within the last few years, this has become a staple to me. And I, any time the Halloween season comes by, this is the movie I go to. So yeah, this is going to be a fun one. And that movie is a WNUF Halloween special, um, which has developed in the past few years, this really 
great little cult following around it. And like, I can't tell you the number of tweets in the past week that I've seen, like it's Halloween season. So the first movie I'm firing up to get in the spirit is this movie, which right now for listeners, if you haven't seen it, um, it is streaming right now on shutter. So is if, you know, if you haven't watched it, we're going to spoil the shit out of this movie. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I would highly recommend you like pause the show, watch the movie and then come back and listen to us talk about it. And Jerry, who are we joined by? We have a really special guest tonight. So who are we joined by? Yeah, we are joined by Chris LaMartina, the uh, one of the writers, the director. Uh, Yeah. Here we go, Chris. What's up? <laughs> How's it going, guys? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, uh, co-writer, co-producer, but then also director, editor. So yeah, Jesus, that's a lot of hats. Did yeah. everything <laughs> with this movie. So um, before we get into we, we start talking, Chris, what I'm going to do is just do a, a brief little synopsis of the movie that I found on Letterbox, cool. which we normally don't do because again, we normally cover franchises, so it's like. You know, we kind of just like kind of run through them. I think for this one, really, really brief synopsis of the film. Okay. Originally broadcast live on October 31st, 1987. I do not have the pipes of Frank Stewart, unfortunately. (laughs) The WNUF Halloween special is a stunning expose of a terrifying supernatural activity that unfolded at the infamous Weber House, the site of ghastly murders. Local television personality Frank Stewart leads a group of paranormal investigators, including a Catholic exorcist, Father Joseph Matheson, and the prolific husband and wife team, Lewis and Claire Berger. Together, the experts explore the darkest corners of the supposedly haunted Weber house, trying to prove the existence of demonic entities within. Did they find the horrific truth or simply put superstitious rumors to rest? (laughs) <laughs> that's a pretty good synopsis of it i think but i think it leaves out what makes this movie such a pleasure is the fact that it looks like it's something that was videotaped off like an old uhf station mm-hmm. that would like and from the 80s like in the time when cable even if you had cable tv you got maybe 20 or 30 stations and uhf was the king of like showing weirdo stuff around the clock so chris my first question what Mm -hmm. gave you the inspiration to do the special in this way like what made you want to do this movie so it looked like an old news broadcast slash um local television special so I, I really feel like it's uh, it, it was a the circumstances around it you know, and the ideation behind it were actually very serendipitous, right? So it was 20, uh, 2012, I think it was this, it was like probably around May or June of twenty twelve, and it was the first year in quite a couple of years, maybe like two years, that my frequent co writer co producer Jimmy George we hadn't made a feature, and we were in the situation where it was like man, the only way we're going to make a movie right now is if we make a found footage movie because we can't make a, a, a like a straight up like narrative like horror comedy feature like we usually do unless we just say like, like um, fuck it, we're going to do something like very pared down. And if you've seen our movies, um, they're not, they're pretty ambitious for our budgets. Um, so, so I was like, all right, so what could we do that, would, that, that was sort of fast and a little bit more economical? And found footage was the, the avenue. So what ended up happening was um, we sort of sat down and said, all right, well, what does the the Midnight Crew Studios uh, horror uh, horror found footage movie look like? 
and I wrote a list of all the things we hated about found footage movies just to sort of like counterpoint all that stuff. And um, to go through this very, very quickly is basically like, uh, well, let me, let me just do it. You know, most found footage movies, uh, they are uh, you, like the second something shitty or fucked up happens, you immediately go, why are they still filming this? Mm-hmm. After that, <laughs> they're like, uh, it just feels so monotonous. It's usually one location. It's usually like a, like a haunted house or like the woods. And, you, and it feels inescapable. Like you need a break. You need a way to get out of that space. And third, you know, the second you buy a movie with the fucking UPC code on the DVD, you know this is a movie. This is not like a. <laughs> this, is, this is not like this is not real. So um, we broke down that story. The first thing we did was, and this was partially inspired by a couple of different things. One of the things that that was mostly inspired by was, um, you know, I, I grew up in uh, in Baltimore. I mean, I still live in Baltimore. And um, one of the things I'd read years ago was there was a, um, they did a radio seance at the Edgar Allan Poe House um, in in Baltimore City, and I just remember thinking like, man, I'd love to hear that. That radio seance like they literally went to the po house they did a live on air on the radio halloween night seance and i've never been able to found the tape but that that hearing that story was the was almost the genesis of this whole thing um but anyway so i was thinking about that and i was thinking about like man like i'd love to do something like that as a set piece for a story and i thought about that and the idea of found footage i was like that would be a great found, found footage set piece but also like that's why they don't turn off the cameras when fucked up shit starts happening because they are doing a broadcast and the mm-hmm. second they stop broadcasting you lose ad revenue you lose your job you're done so you have to keep going no matter what so that was the, that was the first point second point even if we shot this thing in the Weber house the idea uh, 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 like the idea of actually having commercial breaks well it makes total sense right like you need to have, if this is a live TV broadcast, they're going to cut to commercial because that's how you make money as an advertiser, um, how, how you fund your TV station. So that, there was that. And then, um, and which is kind of insane to me because that was the moment for me when um, I told Jimmy, I was like, listen, we should literally make like 20 to 30 minutes of commercials. And at the time it was like, there was this sort of moment where we were like, are we really going to do this? Because I, th- I told Jimmy, um, and there's, this is twofold. One, I said to him, I was like, listen, like, nobody's crazy enough to do this. Like we're those crazy nobodies that don't have anything to lose. Cause like boo fucking who we make it another movie and maybe 10 people act like they don't like this movie. Right. Um, Cause most people won't see it. The funny irony of in all this in, in retrospect is like what now almost um, uh, what, like seven or eight years later after we made this movie, this is the movie we're most well known for. Right. Where, where I seriously thought this was the movie that we sort of throw away while we were making call girl of Cthulhu, which is which, which, which the budget is like 10 times of. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy. Um, but anyway, the third thing with WNF was um, when we released the film, it was like, you know, okay, we made the movie and then we uploaded it to torrent sites and we uploaded, like we uploaded it to like Cinemageddon and a couple other torrent sites with the synopsis saying that like, oh my godmother taped this off of a local TV station back in the late 80s, you know? And it's like, we, we tried to make it like, we gave it away for free in these weird, like loose avenues. Like we literally put it on DV, uh, on VHS tapes and like, you know, my then girlfriend, now wife, we go to like conventions and leave them in the bathroom at conventions, literally with the white <laughs> spot, like a white spine label that said WNF Halloween special. We literally drove down the street in Baltimore and threw fucking tapes out our window. Like, I'm not <laughs> just the most you. punk rock right? way to promote <laughs> a movie of all Dude, time. It, it totally is. And, and thank you for letting me like blabble for God for five fucking minutes straight while I talk about this stuff. But it's like, it's like, it's crazy to me. Like I wanted a whisper campaign. And the thing that's really tough about making movies these days is like, a whisper cane campaign really doesn't work like it did previously. Like now you need 
influencers to talk about your shit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But that's how we did it. Like the the moment for me when people started catch on to this was um uh what's it uh, John Squires from um from yep. Pretty in Space and stuff. He posted our trailer when it finally got a distribution deal, and that's when people started really catching on. Even though it had been on Cinemageddon for fucking five months before then, you know, yeah. like that's that's the crazy shit. Were you forced to pull it down from Cinemageddon? Like once you got distribution, were you like, all right? I I think it's still up there. It's still I, up there. I, I, um, I mean, I, I it's funny. I it's funny. I don't. Um, I'm so bad at torrenting. Like I don't really. Tor- well, I, I don't know if I'm bad at it. I don't do it because you probably right. shouldn't. Uh, but I was gonna say, um, my buddy Charles, one of our associate producers on the movie, um, he's he it was his account. He probably still is up there. I actually got kicked off Cinemageddon because I didn't see it enough. <laughs> Wow, because you didn't steal enough to give you the boot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, dude, it it, should, it might still be up there. I mean, honestly, like most people, you can afford Shutter for five bucks a month. But then, literally, like every if when I check, if you go check YouTube right now, you can probably fucking find it is on there. Yeah, nope, yeah, it exactly. is. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but folks, buy subscribe to Shutter. Like, I mean, Wait, yeah. or or. <laughs> Or hit me up, literally send me a Facebook message or a Instagram or Twitter message. I sell DVDs for 20 bucks shipped and I almost always put extra stuff in like the comic book we wrote or like fucking trading cards or all kinds of weird shit I have. <laughs> did you, and is it still available where you just did like a, a run of VHS on this, like a limited edition VHS? So, and is that over now and people can't it, get it? Un- Unfortunately, the VHS are long gone. So okay. like when, when we first made it, and, and I always make this joke, like who knows, maybe I'll pull a Charles band and find like a bunch more VHS tapes. But like- it suddenly I, appeared. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In my warehouse, AKA my basement. No. <laughs> but no, like um, basically what ended up happening was, um, so when the movie was licensed through Pop Cinema, um, formerly EI, who, who basically a lot of hard, hardcore horror fans would know them. They released movies back in the, the 90s and early 2000s. Like um, they ran Alternative Cinema Magazine and all that stuff. So they released uh-huh. the movie um, in, uh, in 20, uh, 2013 on VHS. They released, I think, 300 copies on VHS. And then it was released on DVD. But what ended up happening was they only did a 300. It sold out like insanely fast. And it, this is what was interesting. That first run was only it was like it was like a, a black sleeves with um white label on the um the, the face of the tape not the spine but the face that said wf halloween special and then if you have a copy that has the spine label written on it that's legitimately real and not just some fucking asshole like making it themselves that's from like the first 50 we made before we even licensed the movie so those mm-hmm. are insanely rare um but i was going to say like um uh uh alternative cinema um pop cinema they they released 300 and then every year since then they basically made like a, a cover with a um like a um a slip case with it mm-hmm. but the thing with that that is, uh, they their rights expired this past year, so the rights are back to us now. We'll probably do another release sometime in the next couple of years. But it's, um, uh, they don't have, um, they they might have a handful left of the of the slipcase. But after that, there's there's the only way to get the DVDs now is either through them or through me, um, mm-hmm. or, or or watch on Shutter. But yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry, Jerry, you first, buddy. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say one of the many things that just really works for me about WNUF uh, is as, as somebody who grew up in the eighties, like the authenticity to it, like, you know, so many things these days try to like call back to the eighties and it feels so forced and just, it just feels bad. But I remember coming across this film a few years ago and it might've been because of Squires, 
but a few years ago I came across it and I, I just almost refused to believe that it wasn't from the eighties. <laughs> you could almost, you could almost smell those cardboard plastic Halloween costumes oozing mm. from the film, you mm-hmm. know, and, and the commercials or the way it's shot. Like it feels so like just authentic. Like it felt like I was watching that those really bad, like Geraldo Rivera expose, <laughs> specials, you know, totally, like totally. I'm, I'm curious, like, how did you decide that that was the approach? I mean, you mentioned, you know, uh, kind of a checklist of what not to do found footage, but this is very precisely a moment in time, that satanic panic era of the Mm. eighties. I don't want to assume anyone's age, but you sound much younger than us. So (laughs) (laughs) I am, I am 35 years old. So, so like when I made WNF, I think I was like 26, 27 when I made that. Um, and And I'll start this by saying that I'm the youngest of three kids and I am the accident. Uh, like literally, my mom has has very has. I don't think she meant to say this, but she literally told me the diaphragm fell out, and that's how I was created. Wow! Uh, so, so basically, oh, she's the best. But like, but like, she, like literally, my brother's seven years older, my sister's five years older. And what I grew up with, and also I was very fortunate. My my godmother, uh, Mary Lou, which is this is really funny. When we put it on Cinema Again, I literally made the fake description saying like. My godmother, Lulu, who I call my godmother, uh, Lulu taped this off local TV back in 1987. <laughs> and um, so, so she would just tape everything. I mean, she was literally like, I would call her, this is a very roundabout way of responding to Jerry's question. Uh, I would call her on like, like school nights and be like, hey, Lulu, would you like tape this thing on me? Uh, uh, tape this thing for me on um, Cinemax? And she'd be like, she'd call me like an hour later and she'd be like, Chris, I checked TV Guide, Killer Condom. What? I'm not taping that. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, and like, but she'd still do it. And literally the next day I'd show up and there'd be a fucking tape with my like fucking lunch because my grandparents would make my lunch and she lived with my grandparents. Anyway, long story short. So like, so basically the situation with, with this was I grew up watching a ton of stuff that was basically ahead of my time. And mm-hmm. like, I remember like literally like I grew up with, um, you know, like I watched Monster Squad for the first time for, because of a DVD, uh, because of a VHS that my brother had taped off of, um, you know, Cinemax or HBO, whatever it was back in the day. So here's what I'll say. I had this immense love for watching old VHS tapes around that era because it was really my first introduction to movies like monster squad or predator or like things that were really like 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 when my brother was young and influential that were just left behind for me as the youngest of three kids now what i'll say additionally to that is the fact that like obviously like dude we're all horror fans you know like i i sincerely believe i mean you can you can call like universal monsters like the golden era i do believe the 80s are the silver era of that stuff mm-hmm. and, yep. and and i really felt like just like watching those things it was it was incredibly um influential just on my mindset about horror stuff but more so i really um you know you mentioned the punk rock marketing aspect of it but dude i grew up in playing in punk rock bands and like it was one of those things where it's like when i watched local tv growing up that's it that was the vision or even watching like J.R. Bookwalter movies or like Eric Stanzi's early films like the DIY shot on video horror movies felt the cinematic equivalent to making you know learning three fucking you know like learning power chords and right. yeah. you know so like that for me was one of those situations where I was like okay I just started consuming as much as possible like shitty shitty low budget shot on video or even regional horror movies and so like i started consuming that in a way where i was like that's what made me really love it and to, to talk to you what you were saying jerry about the um 
uh, the idea of like uh, doing it out of a place of love. I had watched so many parody movies that like they act, they, they want to say it's like an homage to the eighties, but no, it's not a fucking homage. They're making fun of it. And I didn't yeah. like that. It wasn't fucking cool. It was actually in my, in my opinion as a horror fan, really disrespectful. And like, mm-hmm. and, I, and I really said like, no, I love this stuff. I have a su- supreme adoration for those movies in that time period. And I, and, and like, I, I can't say I like set out to make something that was like like trying to get it right that was not the that was not the nature at all if anything it, it was in my blood it was in my dna to like say like i knew how they would do it because i consumed so much of this media but very yeah. frankly at the least i'm just not going to disrespect it it just it, it made me feel like I, I remember growing up you know i would tape everything from like hbo and cinemax on vhs tapes yeah it, it just took me back to that time where you know i get so excited to you know record the latest episode of tales from the crypt or something mm-hmm. and then i'd wake up the next morning and my older brother had recorded like a swimsuit competition on top of it you know like, <laughs> <laughs> these special moments of your life where you're like what the fuck happened yes like, yes the movie just oozes that like magical time of growing up with like vhs and that stuff and i i, I don't mean that necessarily as like you know the the kind of like rage now where everyone's collecting vhs but i mean right. like a time where like every day after school i'd go to my local video store you know like it, it feels like a film that would be on those shelves in the most yeah. reverent way yeah it, it for me it brought back what i would call like the way it's paced it would be like the one more just let me watch like one more segment you know like when you're a kid yeah. and you're staying up really like way past your bedtime but you're really like enthralled by what you're watching and you but nothing has quite happened yet and you're like come mm-hmm. on like one more segment one more segment like every time we would go to commercial like it brought back that way it like teases everything out over the course of the whole movie uh, I think was really well done. It, it adds to that authenticity. Well, and, and Mike, what you just said is a really interesting point. Like it's, I mean, look, the original WNUF is, it does follow a narrative structure, but what you're saying is like, there are these moments where you pause and go like, okay, there's a commercial break or like, okay, there's like in, in the original, there's a, there's a, um, there's an epilogue essentially with this, this extra news broadcast at the end. And then also the, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but like, I mean, I guess we could, but like, it was just one of those things where it's like, it's you're in you're basically a participant in the room as you watch that movie right you're not necessarily mm-hmm. you're, you're not necessarily obviously the movie has some sort of like weird editor whether they're fast forwarding through certain parts or deciding what cuts and picks up later on but it's like it's like dude like you're right mike like it, it's one of those things situations where um it, i'm sorry i got distracted because my cat just walked in the room <laughs> um but basically uh it's it, it's a situation where it's just like it reminds you of this is not YouTube. You're not picking what link goes next. You're at the mercy or whatever at, at whatever the station decided to put on next, or whoever fucking made this fucking weird mixtape is doing for you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely does that. When it comes to the commercials, you weren't the only person to film them, but they had a number of your friends got together to like kind of write and direct those parts. How did you? get them on board with the aesthetic and say like, this is what we're kind of aiming for here. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, um, and it's a little interesting here because like, 
you know, um, for those who haven't seen the movie, there's no commercials in the movie. I mean, I mean, there's no um, there's no credits in the movie, so no one knows what two did what until you go on IMDb or, or Letterboxd or whatever. But like, so there's about five or six commercials that I didn't make. Although some of them, even though I didn't direct them, I still edited them and I changed mm-hmm. a couple things here and there. So, excuse me, let me go down one list. So like Sean Jones, who is Phil of Phil's Carpet Warehouse. Phil, sh- uh, Sean shot that himself. Um, uh, Jim Branscombe, who actually runs Cinematic Void out in Los Angeles. He did um, the uh, Parents Against Partying commercial. Um, the um, mouth um, lipstick commercial that's in the early part of the film. That was my buddy yep. Lonnie Martin who made um, Last of the Manson Girls. Um, my buddy Andy Schwab made uh, one of the, uh, or I guess the only one of the um, the Governor um, Dandridge commercials. Uh, I'm going to forget somebody and I'm going to feel really shitty. I love that one. Dude, you it, talk, it, that <laughs> one. If you um, want to talk about the minor things, like my opponent's infidelity. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> so smooth. <laughs> Well, the other funny thing, dude, you know, um, I was going to say um, uh, Barlow, the governor, uh, the bar- governor Barlow is my dad, which is really great. <laughs> <laughs> so I just made my dad play this guy who's cheating on his wife. Nice. <laughs> um, but I was going to say, and then I'm trying to think there's, there's multiple other ones. I, I don't, I don't want to spend the whole time just me thinking in real time, but like my buddy, Matt Mentor, um, he wrote a handful of the commercials and then he, he um, was there when we, um, we made the, um, the tampon commercial, but I, I DP'd that and I edited that. Um, and, 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 and what I will say about the commercial, I'll tell you about the process of that. So there's twofold there with the commercials. So a handful of the commercials, like were produced, like, like we wrote them and made them like the tampon commercial or like the carve a lantern, um, pumpkin carving kit. Like I made that, but can't, a bunch of the commercials were literally like I had assembled royalty free stock footage, licenses, st- content, old filmmaker stuff from the 80s and 90s that I had known filmmakers that had content of, as well as some like public domain, like um, like stuff that was like literally safe creative commons wise that we could use. So I had had all those three buckets and basically I had about two, four to six writer buddies of mine that came over and I showed them all the stock footage. And I basically said, listen, we could do this. We could, you know, we could make an electrical company um, ad out of this. We could make a wine cooler company out of this. And then like, I just showed them all these commercials and I said, okay, like, Hey, Patrick Stork, could you write these 10 categories or anything else you have? So literally within the next two weeks after that, all these writers would send me like ideas. They'd send me like some like 15 to 30 second spots that I would sort of like copy edit and then produce. So that was how the commercials went about. There, was, there wasn't that many that were made without um, my involvement. Cause I, um, as many people know, I'm um, at least people who know with me, I'm kind of a control freak for better or for worse. And it ends up being like, 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 for example, like I was actually just, in a, I just did a podcast with Jim at Cinematic Void. And he was saying, he's like, yeah, dude. I mean, I remember when you sent me the criteria for shooting Parents Against Partying, he was like, I was really scared that I was going to make something and you weren't going to use it. And I was like, well, I'm not that crazy. But like, he, I, I literally said like, it has to be at even 30 seconds. Like if you go fucking three frames over, I'll find a way to cut it down. If, if people don't look like they're from the eighties, I'll find a way to either like have a VHS glitch at the least go over it or I'll reshoot it or put in another shot over that. Basically giving, telling them like, guys, like I take this really seriously and I don't want you mm-hmm. to like, this cannot be a fucking joke. Um, so like, that was the big thing, but basically, um, yeah, I mean, like I, I gave those folks as much freedom as I, as I could while not still losing the vision that like, mm-hmm. I wanted this to feel era appropriate and it, it marries so many of the things from that time period i mean just off the top of my head the dentist against halloween like the idea <laughs> and i was 
doing i i you know couldn't find it but like what would a pound of halloween candy go for back in 1987 to see <laughs> I if that's a good deal been, i don't know i think the kids are gonna get, get screwed in that deal to be quite honest um the you know bringing in like the satanic panic um yeah. aspect of it the parents against partying um and then also, like, it, it seems like the mythos of the film is derived from Amityville and the DeFeo family murders, mm-hmm. yep. uh, as well as, like, you have, like, obviously the burgers are inspired by um, oh, Ed and Lorraine uh, Warren, seemingly. <laughs> so it's, w- tell me a little bit about coming up with, like, the kind of the mythos behind it and, like, what elements you wanted to kind of add in to make this all come together so i'll, I'll respond to that in two ways i'll say uh, first and foremost um i have no clue what you're talking about when it comes to ed and lorraine warren and, <laughs> and then um second thing what i'll say is um the the defeos okay so like this is a really good point where it's like obviously like amityville horror is the quintessential haunted house movie right um and what i'll say here is we had written this is this is actually really interesting and I, and I don't talk about this very often so this is like a nice little nugget that you guys are getting that people forget about or i don't even know if i've ever even expressed this so when we originally sat to write the screenplay there were a couple different characters um we were going to have the burgers have an uh, like a niece that was psychic and then end up she ended up basically becoming one with the psychic niece and um uh, Claire Berger actually evolved into the same character because we were like, we don't need this many characters in this fucking haunted house. But what was interesting was the backstory of the Weber house in our, in our first treatment, before the screenplay, the first treatment was that the Weber house was going to be the house of someone who was a spirit photographer back in the 1800s, where it was like, you know, like spirit photography, like was basically this bullshit. It was very, very uh, charlatan where they would like, you know, they would do like emulsions, like was fucked up or like double exposures where it was like, they would try to make, make it look like they're ghosts in the pictures when they really weren't. And yeah. the whole shtick was like, we were going to do this whole thing where it was like, okay, this, what there weren't actually ghosts, but now this house was haunted by real ghosts. Cause they were so pissed that they weren't actually, um, uh, that they weren't actually capturing ghosts on film. And when I, when, that was the early, early, early treatment draft that I had and, and Jimmy and I, and, I, and I had worked out together. And um, what ended up happening was we, we gave it to my buddy, Jamie Nash. And um, Jamie Nash, if you guys don't know what he's done, he's, he's written a couple of films for um, Ed Sanchez, who made Blair Rush Project. Like he, he co-wrote um, Lovely Molly and um, <laughs> Altered and a bunch of, um, some of the best genre movies the last like 15 years, and, in my opinion. And um, so Jamie, he's another Baltimore guy. And he's a good friend of ours. Um, we had said to this treatment and we were like, what do you think, Jamie? He's like, honestly, guys, like, don't, I would not do this, this spirit photography thing because I really feel like it, you don't need that for a, a throwaway backstory. And I, and I think he was totally right. Like that was one of those moments where I realized like for so much of horror movies, if you make it too convoluted, it loses the primal nature and primal storytelling and primal sort of like, like um, very simple plot beats are really important for just like the atmosphere stuff. And if I had done that, even though it may have been a little bit more interesting thematically with the idea of like some of the payoffs we do in act three of WF, I think it would have really ruined the, um, uh, the, it, it just would have felt like too much, you know? Um, but yeah, no, look, like, like Mike, to go back to your original questions, there's definitely a ton of influences from what was in the collective consciousness in 1980s America. And I think the Amityville horror case is a really good example of that. Excellent. Yeah. And I mean, uh, just the whole expose in general, I mean, going back to what I said earlier about Geraldo Rivera. Yes, I remember, yes. I remember, I remember being a kid 
and you know my my dad and my grandma and everyone's like oh we gotta watch this you know Geraldo's gonna find the the you know Al Capone Capone. yeah 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 yeah. Al Capone or Jimmy Hoffa or whoever it was and I remember just sitting around the tv and having to go in and out these commercials waiting for this big reveal and then at the end it was just like nothing bullshit you know and like dude yes this film takes you back to that to where like you're expecting nothing to happen at the end because <laughs> it has that same kind of buildup in a good way. And then at, at, you know, as it goes on and when shit hits the fan, you're just like, wow, that's unexpected. Like yeah. I'm, I'm curious, <laughs> even from a technical side, how mm-hmm. did you get this, like the look and the footage to look so authentic? Sure. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So it's really interesting. So it, it was, there was this moment early on where I had been making I'd been making some of the commercials and like, you know, for the early commercials were like I said earlier, half like royalty free stock footage, like literally sites that anyone could go and buy a subscription for and start using the footage. Uh And then, um, and the other stuff was like, like footage from back in the day. But like when we actually shot the story stuff, like in the Weber house, I was like, how am I going to make this look real? I mean, it's kind of funny. You shoot something 30 frames per second versus 24 frames per second or 23.97 it immediately looks like it immediately does this weird thing to your brain because most things you watch are 24 frames a second so there was that was part of it but then also two things here we shot on old video gear like we shot the Weber house stuff on commercial like um i previously i had worked in government television when i was in like um right out of film school and i hit up all those guys that i worked with i was like hey you guys want to help me shoot this new movie and they said yeah and they came out we did a couple old school tv news cameras and filmed that way now it wasn't Uh it wasn't like uh beta cam or like anything like that but it was dv cam so it still tape stock but then at the end of the day after the entire movie was done i look i mean like even though i'm fairly young comparatively like um i grew up buying bootleg VHS tapes from bootleg VHS catalogs. So like I knew, like I was actually just talking about this actually with um with 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 Jim from Cinematic Void. I was I was telling him I was like I was like dude <laughs> I remember getting like bootleg tapes of like Sam Raimi's short films and mm-hmm. they were they were fucking garbage. You couldn't watch them. So like but like because they had been through a VCR seven fucking times. So when we were done the movie, we literally bounced the movie back and forth at least I think the magic number is three. I I bounced into a VCR three times before that I was happy with the look. So that that's what happened. Like that's what made it feel truly like era appropriate for me. That's a level of detail that just, you, I mean, again, like you just wouldn't, people don't do that. To your point before of saying people call it homage, but it's really kind of like taking the piss on right, something right. like to have like that level of little detail to me, just kind of, it well, kind of blows me away. Well, and Mike, like, like literally like it's, no one would be fucking dumb enough to do that. Like that's the thing. Like I like I I, I want to like backtrack because like I remember I showed a rough cut to Ed Ed Sanchez and he was like, dude, this is amazing. Like this looks phenomenal, but you should really do this HD so it, it would help your distribution. And like, dude, I have nothing but the immense amount of respect for Ed Sanchez. He's a fucking phenomenal dude. But I remember stepping back and I was like, no, like that like is not the right note because in my head the second we make it HD, it's not realistic anymore. And and like, for me, it was like one of those moments where I was like, dude, like, okay, if that is what stops us from, from like, I don't know, 
going getting a license this is never gonna fucking happen in my goddamn life but if that's what stopping stops us from getting a licensing deal from like sony or like anything like that or like blumhouse or whatever i don't give a shit because i like that like i don't make movies to like like none of the movies i've ever made ever make money for me like it was one of those moments where i was like i just want to make a movie that feels real and i mm-hmm. and and more than ev- anything ever I want this to be the movie that like you, like someone like y'all finds this movie and says, what the fuck is this? Like, I don't want people to go into this being like, well, you know, the top 10 horror influencers said this is the next best Halloween. I don't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. Like, I want people to feel this is real and like, and, and or comparatively real to like other stuff. But like, it, like I wanted that. And I think that was really important to me when we made this film, like, does this movie feel like it looks like it's era appropriate? Does it feel like it really could be part of this uh, cultural conversation? And for the most part, I feel like people feel that way. So that's, that's a win. Speaking of feeling real, let's, let's, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about some of the performances in, in the film, because I think it doesn't get more real than Frank Stewart uh, played by Paul Ferenkopf. Um, you watching this movie you can almost smell like the marlboro lights and the <laughs> weak in the scotch and the and like the scotch you know like it's like a um little bit more together you know um anchorman basically yeah how, how did you find paul and you know what made him kind of like attracted to this role so it's it's interesting i will backtrack by saying it's it's weird to do it's i almost want to pause for a second and say like you know, it's it's uh, October 2020 right now. We made WNUF in October uh, 2012. Like literally, my Facebook memories this week have all been me asking, like, "Hey, does anyone have a uh, news van?" Like, you know, like like literally me trying to find all these things. And Paul mm-hmm. was someone who was part of our filmmaking family um, way before uh, way before WNUF. So we had made we made a bunch of horror comedies that no one remembers and or care cares about. Uh, and we made a film called President's Day, which is basically a high school student council election where all the candidates for student council are being killed by a maniac in an Abraham Lincoln mask. Mm-hmm. And Paul... I, I've seen that movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you guys have because you're fucking hardcore fun. horror fans. It was yeah. a fun little slasher. <laughs> so, like, so Paul was a detective, Detective Kurtz in that movie. And, um, you know, like he, he was in that movie and then like, he auditioned for the film and he was great. Like I loved him. And, and when I was working with him, um, I just like, I just really enjoyed him as a human being. Like, I mm-hmm. think there's so much you learn about um, folks um, yeah, when the cameras aren't rolling, when you're just literally just sitting around waiting for like a, like the gaffer to finish like lighting a scene. So you can, you know, like anything like that is happening and you're, or you're running lines with someone just in between dialogue. And Paul Farrakhan was just this, this incredible, is this incredible man. And I really enjoyed his sense of humor. So, in between takes of this and that stuff, I just got to know Paul really well. And I was like, man, like every, I, I asked this to every actor I know um, at some point, if, if I like them, let me, let me clarify that. <laughs> um, but basically I said to Paul, I was like, if you could play any type of like role, like what would you play? And I can't remember what Paul said to me, but every time, which is terrible, but like every time I, uh, I thought about Paul, I thought about like, what would the movie look like where Paul is the lead actor? Not the character actor, Paul, but like, what is the movie that looks like where Paul Farrakhan is the fucking lead? So I wrote WF with Paul mm. in mind as the lead actor. Now, don't nice. get me wrong. You know, there's plenty of, there's plenty of um, 
like you said, Mike, like like Anchorman, or even like Bill Murray in um in Groundhog Day. There's that's a there. really good one. You know? Yeah, that's yeah, perfect. But like, but there's but there's something there where I was like, you know what? Like, there's something about Paul that just like um and there's a there. I mean, very clearly um I. I don't like to mention his name, but like uh, in Baltimore, there's, there's a new newscaster that I really channeled when I wrote the Frank Stewart stuff that I felt like Paul reminded me of, not only in his physicality, but also in like his, just his sense of humor. Um, so long story short, um, we auditioned Paul and we auditioned people for WF. Uh, we, did, we did like one day of auditions for WF, but most, for the most part, we sort of know who we were going to cast. Now, it was mm-hmm. interesting when we did that, Paul's first audition was terrible. And I, to- and I, I remember calling Paul and I was like, Paul, listen, dude, I'm not going to like bullshit you. I'll just say this to you straight up. I wrote this movie for you. Like just come in and be yourself and and, like, just really like, like lower the pressure. Like I wrote this for you. Like, don't feel like you need to like act, put on some big show, like just come in. So we auditioned again and he got the part because he like, he realized like, it was like, I just wanted him to have fun. And like, um, you know, like I always joke that uh, for me, and it's gotten a little difficult, different as, as I've gotten older and as, as filmmaking is not my, um, like, I mean, for anyone listening, like filmmaking is not my job. Literally no movie has ever paid me as much as my fucking salary at, at like my, you know, my marketing advertising jobs. Uh, but basically like um, I, filmmaking for me is it's summer camp. Like I remember early on before I was married, any vacation I ever fucking took was making a movie. I remember when we made Call Girl Cthulhu, I saved up two years of vacation just to take off a month to make that movie. And like with, 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 with the actors, when I say it's like summer camp, look, some summer you're going to have some people that came from last summer. Like sometimes you're going to have the campers that come back again next year. And then some summers you won't. And sometimes there'll be variants of like which campers come back, which campers move on or which campers stay home that summer. But really they are my, they're my, uh, they're my the camping crew and they're my, they're my family. Like they're my players. Like if you look in between every movie I've made, there's always some holdover between actors. You're never going to find a whole new slate of folks. How much did he at start adding to it as you were filming? Because there's just like little pieces there, like, oh, that's a really pretty pussy. And yeah. <laughs> just like, you know, and there's like, it's still, and it, yes, that might have been in the script, but yeah. there's such like an eye twinkle that comes with that. And it strikes me as the kind of guy that like, he never quite made it on the onto the network like he wanted to. And he's like, he's above the role that he's in but he's yeah. not quite good enough to be where he wants to be as a newscaster. Well, and that and, was part. Yeah. Sorry. God. No, go ahead. Uh, and that was part of the direction that I gave Paul and I gave him a lot more information about who I based it on. Um, because some of the people that he gave that he was based on a little bit of was uh, um, very clearly um, like a little annoyed at his station in life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's Paul really embraced that part. Like, if I stopped giving a shit, what would I be like? You know, and, I, and, I, and, I, and that was very liberating for him as a newscaster. So what I would say was, okay, so when we were we were um, when we made WNF, the, uh, we shot we shot forty pages in two days. Which anyone who's ever made a fucking movie, uh, that's fucking insane. Um, but also the, the the how we were shooting a movie was, you know, it's it was two cameras and actors that are largely. Um, it's really, it's almost like filming a play to a certain degree in the Weber house. Right. Um, so we shot all that stuff. So, but with the improv, the entire film was written out. Like it, it's not improv. It's not like um, there was a script. There wasn't talking points. Right. So like what ended up happening was um, 
uh, we had done a week and a half or so of rehearsals prior to the, the um, us being announced. Now, they had those scripts. And I think early on, the actors really wanted to stay close to the script. Even the actors that were more theatrical were like, no, the script is really important because this is a movie. And I really, and I really encouraged them like, no, 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 I cast you guys because I think you're smart and funny. Like, I don't think you, you don't need to be holding the script. So we, when we did the rehearsals, I would, um, they'd be looking at their scripts and I would turn out the lights and I would give them a, a flashlight. And I'd say, hold this flashlight like it's your microphone. And this was for two reasons. The number one reason for the flashlight was um, one, that means whoever speaking is illuminated, but then also to get them comfortable with the fact that, dude, if you don't fucking hold this mic in front of your mouth, we're not going to hear what you're saying mm. because that is the technology we're dealing, dealing with. Mm -hmm. So like, that's what, like when we recorded live, like, you know, even though we were monitoring the audio on set, we need to make sure very clearly to them, like, we're not going to, if you say something when the mic's not in your hand, it doesn't fucking matter because no one's gonna hear it. So like, so we, we did on improv for about a week and a half. And um, you know, you know, like like every couple of nights we did we did a rehearsal and got to the point where like um Paul and um Brenton August and Helen Mary who played the, they, they played the burgers and as well as um Robert Long who played Rich, um um Father Matheson, it was like they they knew kind of generally what they were gonna improv. But they like, like they, they, there had been some jokes early on that they improv probably the first week of rehearsals that became part of the script, basically. The one mm -hmm. person I will say, the one person I'll say that is like shockingly accurate to the script, but at the same time, I don't see this as a bad thing, is actually, this is kind of ironic, is Rob Long, who was Father Matheson. Mm -hmm. He really treated the script very, very seriously and took it very close, which I think is ironic based off the, the th act three reveal of his character because it actually, it makes total sense. So yeah, yeah. Can you talk about the chemistry between, I think it's Richard Cutting as Gavin Gordon <laughs> and um, it's Leanna as Deborah in the new yeah. studio because like that is, and it's funny, an hour before we recorded this, I just watched this news clip of a, of a local newscast, I think it's in Kansas City, of the anchor woman just absolutely losing her mind because she was reading a story about a guy who said he was going to set off a bomb in a Home Depot restroom. And what he was referring to was like how bad he had to shit. And once, <laughs> once, once she realized that was what Sorry. the story was about, she lost it. Like she completely <laughs> broke on air, like and had tears of laughter. Um, there is like this great cheesy, silly chemistry between these two. And, you know, if anyone familiar with local news, especially back then, I think it just, it, um, it fits. So like, can you talk about how yeah. they develop that kind of patter or that routine? Um, because I think that really sets the stage and sets that feeling of authenticity because they're reading straight news. Like they're reading, you know, they're not getting goofy stories. No, totally. And I think what's interesting is like, um, okay, so Leanna, um, you know, a lot of people might know her from some of the Don Dolder movies she made in the um, late 90s, early um, 2000s. And um, she like, it's interesting, Leanna in her professional life is also had done a ton of like hosting and like voiceover work for like corporate videos or government content. And Leanna is like the sweetest woman. If you ever get to meet her in person, she's just so like, just charismatic and charming, but she's so used to doing those things that are very are like say it with a smile, like 
tell this story, which really reminded me of like classic news from that era. And then Richard Cutting, you know, he just like totally got that. And if anything, Richard in my head reminded me so much of, um, you know, um, Fred Willard. Yes. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and like, um, and it's funny too, like I always joke and I think maybe that's the connection for my, my subconscious, but I really feel like WNF is like if Christopher Guest made a uh, found footage movie, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and, I did uh, see that. <laughs> you know? So like, it was one of those things where like, they, I'm sure they had worked together before. I'm sure, I can't remember if Leanne, because Richard is also a filmmaker, is that right? And he'd made um, uh, a sci-fi web series called um, Milgram and the Fast Walkers. I can't remember if Leanna's in that or not, but like they had a general, they knew who they, who they were and they had, a, like, they had a good comfort level. So that felt like naturally what they would be. But those guys, like we were in a TV studio and they were running for a teleprompter. The only thing they weren't running teleprompter on was the dialogue at the end. Um, and honestly, that was one of those moments where, like, I realized the power of um, uh, hair and makeup to really sell an era. Like, I remember our, our, our makeup artist on that day, um, uh, Leah, had done um, Leanna's makeup. And I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, Leah. Like, her, her eyeshadow is, is insane. Like, you can't give her that much eyeshadow. And Leah sort of looked at me like I was a fucking moron. And she was like, did you, did, like do you know anything about the 80s? Like, obviously, this woman's eyeshadow is correct. But, like, it's funny. I didn't feel that way. Like, I felt like Leah, uh, Leanna looked like a clown until I ran through VCR. And then there was this weird thing where I was like, oh, no, this is exactly what I'm imagining. Uh-huh. It was just, like, it was just crazy. But, no, like, honestly, like, like Leanna and, and, and Rich were just, like, um, there was just, like, a, a comfort level there between their performances and I, I will say that that was not rehearsed at all they they did that the same day they they um we met up together they had the scripts obviously way before that but yeah yeah you know what you know i i mentioned earlier kind of the things this film reminds me of it, it also reminds me of a time where we would make our own skate videos yeah and have to like have to rig it to where we could put like our favorite bands on the soundtrack of the vhs skate videos <laughs> Then we'd have to transfer both of those to another videotape and that kind of stuff. It's that DIY, like Mike said, punk rock aesthetic and approach to it that I think makes it one of the best crowd movies that I've I've seen. Uh, You know, one of my best friends passed away about a year and a half ago. And every week we'd have this thing, or, or once a month, I mean, we'd have this thing that he would call VHS. It was a group of horror fans and people that would get together and watch the movie. And the last one he did before he passed away was this movie that he was just sure that none of us had seen. He's like, oh my God, I have to show you this. We all got, got together, pizza, you know, like beer or whatever. And it was WNUF. And mm. none of us had none of us had the nerve to tell him that we'd all seen it because it's this movie <laughs> that like, you know, everyone in the horror kind of community knew because of word of mouth. And yeah. like even watching him experience it for the first time, like it, it's like a magical movie. And I, I, I know that sounds cheesy, but it, not only makes you go back to that time of growing up in that era, but it also like a time of like just getting around with your friends and watching something, maybe you shun it or just like watching that stuff in general, like, you know, with that approach and with how successful it is as far as like cult classic horror fans all love it. How do you approach a sequel to that? Oh boy. That is like, Dude, I will. Uh, I will say it's very intimidating, um, and um, I, I want to backtrack first. I'm going to talk about the sequel, but let me backtrack for a second. First of all, um, thank you so much for sharing that story, um, because I feel like that's a really important note to this, right? Like, mm-hmm. 
it, things become some like sometimes movies become more than than films or 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 just like you know videos they become more like a collective experience mm-hmm. and i think what you just said is like really important like there was a story years ago where um my buddy uh uh i won't say a name yet so like a, fr- a friend of mine had told me a story where like someone in he was living in this punk house out in um columbus ohio and a buddy of his who was like a vhs tape collector said like hey i found this tape in the basement it just has this label i want to watch it let's all go together and like grab a pizza and do this so like they put the tape in it's wf and my buddy patrick is like dude i'm from baltimore i know chris i know this fucking movie And this was within like the first two months of the release of this movie. So like, um, but like I say that because like, dude, I can't stress this enough. I am never, and maybe this is a good parlay into the sequel conversation. Look, I'm never going to make a movie that has the emotional resonance as well as the longevity of WF. Like, I'm not fucking stupid. You can't get lightning in a bottle twice. Like, I don't think the sequel is going to be like, the sequel is not going to be like Aliens to alien right or like any, <laughs> any any comparison you want to make um so like i i want to be very careful when i talk about the sequel because it's like listen like if anything i, I mean I, while i'm hoping it's not going to be my sh- you know shock treatment to rocky horror i really feel like it, it like it's a different type of movie so mm-hmm. what the second we finished um wf I, I i was putting on i was bouncing back and forth between the vhs the vcrs and but at the same time we were we were literally a month away from starting to film Call Girl Cthulhu, and I was literally like, dude, like, I had the most fucking fun of my life as a filmmaker making WNUF, and I literally was like, dude, I don't want to. St- I almost could make a movie like this every year. Like, I really uh-huh. enjoy it so much. But at the same time, too, I knew like you know, like you can't be the filmmaker that always makes that type of movie over and over again. At the same time too, I was like, well, why can't I? It's fucking fun. Um, but, the, but, the, but, the, but the trick to it was, you know, I, I guess that's more of like a TV show thing or a web series thing. But the, but the, the simple fact of that is I'm not a full-time filmmaker. Like, like I hinted at earlier, I work full-time in advertising and marketing and communications. And it's like, making movies has never made me the money that I could do where I even got the option to quit my job and I quit my day job job. So the second WNF was done filming and all Don produced, put on a VHS tape ready to go distribution. I was like, man, I'd love to do a sequel to this. I literally, and like literally like weeks after I was like, what would the sequel to this be? Like, what would the, 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 the pivot be? And I kept thinking, I was like, dude, I love the 1980s. Don't get me wrong. But like, I'd almost want to try to figure out like, like what is the, and, and I kept going back to, as you guys as horror fans will know this, when George Romero made Ned Living Dead, you know, he had take some, he, he cool, had some time to cool off and he was like, well, what does this poli- very political zombie movie feel like in the seventies? And they made Dawn of the Dead. And then what does this very political zombie subgenre look like in the 1980s, right? And I kept thinking, I was mm-hmm. like, what is WNUF in the 90s supposed to be, right? Because like Ronald Reagan's America versus Bill Clinton's America and what is scary and what is weird or what is culturally appropriate, even a decade later, is way fucking different. So I started thinking about that and I was like, oh, 
oh no, I totally know what I'm going to do if I was if I were to make the 1990s WF. So like that's the, the sequel to WF, and and I've been very very careful about this. We're making it right now for those who are listening. Like I've been running a crowdsourcing campaign to to raise the money. We basically have all the money I think we're going to raise. I mean at this point now the uh, the GoFundMe we have is literally just to buy DVDs or VHS tapes, and because um, like all the things to be in the movie are basically all accounted for, um, just because we're so far into production. But like I've been very careful about what I talk about with the movie because just like the original. I don't want someone to watch this movie for the first time and know what it's about. Like, I really want someone to yeah. go in, like, and say, like, what the, what the fuck is the story? Like, literally, like, the first couple minutes, at least how I'm devising the movie right now, the first couple minutes, you're gonna be like, is this a fucking horror movie? Like, and then it'll and then it'll pivot, and there's some sort of weirdness, and there's like, here's here's what I will say about the sequel. There is returning. There are returning characters. Uh, it takes place on Halloween. It takes place on uh, in the years of 1994 and 1996. So it's, there's a time jump, and there's um, uh, there is commercials. Like so, so you are watching something that's been taped off television. And outside of that, I've been very, very careful about what I say because I want this to be a very, um, you know, look. Anyone who grew up in the 1990s knows you saw a fucking trailer, and half the movie was fucking ruined right. for you of any movie. So, and I don't want to do that. I, I'm some at some point I'll have to make a trailer for it, but I'm ultimately I will make a trailer for this movie six months after it's been fucking released and all the people have gotten me, given me uh you know their 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 payment for uh, DVDs yeah. and will have their copies. Um, so yeah. Without getting too much then into like the the plot of of the next one or the comings and goings of it, what do you think are going to be some of the key? you know, like aesthetic differences. Like you talked about, yeah. it's very much like Bill, and I honestly was thinking, because we're putting together, like our patron show this month is going to be <laughs> um, The House on Haunted Hill, the 1999 movie. And I'm thinking like, man, like what a fun fucking movie that is. Like, it's just a pure joy and fun to watch. And I was just thinking mm-hmm. like how, like the Clinton era was like, by and large, people felt pretty good about themselves overall. It's, and I was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I'm sorry, I'm gonna cut you off. Just like, what would you say? Like the key aesthetic differences are going to be heading into the sequel. So obviously, there's a, there's a higher sophistication, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. I, and I also there's a, there's a huge pivot between in WF, you're looking at a lot of local ads, mm-hmm. and you're looking at the fact that like there was a huge. I mean, look, I mean, I'm pretty left wing. I don't think that's a fucking like a surprise to anyone you're in good uh, company like, here then yeah i, I assume <laughs> but, <Right>. like, <laughs> but at the same time too bill clinton even though he was left wing for the democratic party in the 1990s like he led to a lot of deregulation of of communications and um and and media ownership and the pivot was largely local media markets were gutted and fucked with mm-hmm. like there were like local tv stations were bought and turned into fucking clear channel you know, like uh, lackeys, for lack of a better term. And like, so there's a pivot where like things are less local. Now don't get me wrong, there's still plenty of local stuff in the WF sequel, but it's like, here's what I'll say. And, and there's a there's heightened level of sen- um, sensationalism within media. Uh, the, the, the takeaway from this conversation, if you want to go really high level thematic with the WF sequel versus the original, is if WF the original is about how, how we consume media in the 1980s, the WF sequel is about how media consumed us in the 1990s. I mean, if you just think about the idea of like something almost like, you know, like what is the sational, say, 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 sensationalism of like fucking broadcasting OJ Simpson driving his fucking right. Bronco down the yeah. highway 
like things like that, like, dude, like that didn't happen in the eighties, but now you have this 24 hour news cycle and this idea that like, we have to put on a fucking show is like, is, is very prevalent in the 1990s. So there's that there. And then I would say like, I mean, how I've been describing the movie without ruining any of the plot is, uh, you know, imagine if Jerry Springer uh, hosted an episode of sightings. Oh, like that—that's that's literally like the best way to describe it. Beautiful. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, 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 and and here's what I'll say too is, uh, we've been working on this movie for quite some time. Uh, obviously we're in a pandemic right now, and I'm trying to produce as much as possible while literally being a crew with myself. And then sometimes um, Melissa, my wife, is uh is helping me do stuff. It's not fucking easy. Um, I it's uh it's actually really really difficult to still get all the shit done. But like um. I, uh, it's, it's weird to me because like, I really sincerely hope this can come out by next Halloween, but if, if the pandemic hasn't calmed down by March, it might be 2022, which is mm. fucking heartbreaking. So. Yeah, that, that's God, that's, it's, it's we're going to run, we're, there's going to come a point where we're going to run out of content as weird as that yeah. sounds like it's going to yeah. be, there's going to be nothing new to, that's going to be able to come out. Um, and God, who knows, like, it's funny because drive-ins have been for years, like drive-ins have gone down and down and down. And all of a sudden like Regal has just shuttered all of their locations until who knows when Um, AMC has said like, we're not going to survive this if it keeps up. And meanwhile, like drive-ins are now like chugging along and seem to be, you know, we, there's another one open up near about 30 minutes from us this year because they know that they can actually do this thing. Um, Ugh. it's so weird it's just absolutely beyond but it, it, to your point about the sensationalism it feels like in the first movie like you would have ha- made it at a time when there was like five six maybe seven stations so you yep. and you if you were gonna change the channel you had to get off the sofa and like turn that knob and fuck yeah. no i'm not doing that um <laughs> where in the 90s you have now like 50 to 100 stations and if you wanted to keep people you had to keep people enthralled or entertained or else they were going to change so i'm really uh, i'm excited to see like the heightened mood and the heightened like sense of everything being amplified in when whatever the sequel brings us thanks man appreciate it um circling back my last question on the on the first movie really Mm -hmm. quick i guess would be like you know you talked about the guerrilla marketing of it and you talked about like john squires when he was doing freddy in space um kind of picking up on it and then like i remember like running all things horror at the time and Mm -hmm being like, I really want to get my eyes on this movie. And I think it took years before I actually got to see it. Um, When did you start to notice that like, because now, like I mentioned at the start of the show, like so many people are discovering this. Like, when did you just kind of like figure out, like this was a thing that people were really picking up on and really enjoying and kind of making a part of like, every Halloween, these mm. are the core movies we watch every October, no matter what. When did that hit you that people were doing that? Or has it? Has it even done uh, that? It, it, it definitely has now. So when we first made the movie, okay, so here's the interesting thing. When we had made WNUF, it was literally like, hey, even though it was it was my favorite thing we've ever done, and it was like it was like super just like I was in the shit like doing this like literally I'd wake up and edit commercials, go to work, come home on my lunch break, edit another commercial, go to back to work, come home, edit commercials like all this thing for like for the like like we like stripped a screen. It was nine months making this movie, but we were in pre production on Call of Cthulhu 
while we made WNUF. Like literally we were doing the crowdsource for Call Girl of Cthulhu while we did this. And then I was doing all the editing while we were in, in pre-production and then starting to shoot. Like literally the like literally two weeks before we, we shot our first day of Call Girl through Cthulhu was when I finished the final fucking cut of this movie. Like it's insane. So like, it was really, it, it was not even a thought as we were making Call Girl, which was like I said, like 10 times the budget of WNUF. And um, you know, we'd finished the movie and I, and I sent like, you know, uh, I guess like 10 screener copies out to like various reviewers across the country. And um, I got an interview request from uh, my buddy. Uh, well, now he's a buddy. He wasn't a buddy then. It was Eric Pippenberg of New York Times. And he did a story about that movie and the VHS revival for um, New York Times, their arts entertainment section. And that's when I realized like people might actually care about that. Like might actually care about this movie in a way that I didn't think so. And like then um, a month later, I was asked to be on uh, uh, National Public Radio's show here and now to talk about the horror movies, but specifically WNUF. It was that, and then Vice did an article the same year about how they how the um, the, the writer of the article said he was a little drunk, but he went to see a screening at the um, uh, some sort of Brooklyn uh, arts theater, and he was convinced this was real as he's watching. Now, obviously. <laughs> You know, like he was probably very drunk if he thought it was real. Because don't get me wrong, I think after like ten minutes, you realize it's a little questionable. Um, but like, I, I at that point, I was like, dude, I got like a special like little movie, right? And I was like, cool, this is really neat. Like people, like you know, maybe three hundred people care about this rather than the the usual twenty or thirty people that care about our movies. Um, but then every year subsequently since that, more people cared. And what was even crazier was like. Um, this is like the weird story I'll tell. So like, you know, like uh, some horror influencers hit us up and they were like, hey, like, what do you want to make a movie with us? And then it came to a situation where it was being made very clear to me that like, um, the f even the jump to the next tiny, tiny step up to make a movie for like a hundred grand didn't make sense for me financially in my career to go leave to make a movie where maybe my mm -hmm. paycheck was 10, 10 grand to make a movie for someone else that they mm -hmm. own, right? So it's a sort of weird thing where it's like, I never jump ship to make movies professionally because like, I was like, um, uh, whatever that means, quote unquote professionally, because like, it was like, dude, like even though I made a movie that people do really care about season to season, um, October season to October season, um, that they think it's cool and they watch every year, there's not the money there. I mean, dude, I will, t I, I don't want to say a number out of respect for like, you know, me and Jimmy's finances, but like the, this movie has never ever fucking done enough where I could fucking like pay one month of my mortgage, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> like, it's just one of those things where it's like, um, even though this is a very special flick um, and I'm really glad I made it. I'm really glad people love it. It's like one of those situations where like, um, this is not an, this is not a, uh, um, we're, we just live in a weird time for content creators and for filmmakers. Like, I don't, I, I think it's incredible that any filmmaker, any director outside of the studio system can make a living making movies. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what I'll say is, I, I, it's very clear to me that how special this film is. And I do believe 20 or 30 years from now, somebody will still um, talk to me and, and ask me to do a, um, a, a podcast or, or fly me out to do a screening. Because every year, I get, I either get flown out to do a screening or like I, I, I get asked to be on like a handful of podcasts to talk about it. But the thing is, it's not like that's, and I'm fine with this, but that's all it is. You know, it's not like, I'm not John Carpenter. 
Like I'm literally not fucking like, you know, uh, rolling a joint and playing video games all day based off the, <laughs> the, the money I made from WF. Cause dude, the money I made from WF is nothing. Cause mostly because yeah. people don't pay content anymore. <laughs> do the, do people get surprised by that? Cause when you see like, Oh, it's on shutter, they must be getting some sort of streaming deal for mm. Like, do people like tell you like that's legitimately surprising? So it, it's interesting. Years ago, I, um, this is way before WNF actually, but like somebody hit up, uh, my, my, my co-writer, co-producer on WNF, Jimmy George, he, um, somebody said like, dude, you work at the mall? Like, I thought you were like out and I thought you were like living the dream, making movies. It's like, yeah, I still make movies, but I fucking work at the mall. And I think that's a good, like, that's like a good encapsulation of like, mm-hmm. of like the perception of what it means to be a filmmaker. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I have been very fortunate. My my degree that I got in college was in, in film and media. And then I parlayed that into, into a career in um, uh, agency and marketing and advertising and things like that and communications. But like, it's, it's, dude, if someone makes a living making feature films, um, especially as a director or as a writer or as a producer, that's so rare. And I, and I know, and I, and I teach screenwriting at a local university in Baltimore. And I remind those folks, it's like, dude, you got to have something that lines your wallet and that's what advertising like a full-time gig is to me. Mm-hmm. But you got to have something mm-hmm. that lines your heart. You got to have something that lines your heart because like, dude, you will, um, I, I will paraphrase the words of my buddy, Mike Lombardo, director of um, I'm Dreaming of a White Doomsday. He's like, you got to have something that like keeps that gun out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, like literally like um, you can't just be your job, but at the same time too, for for reasons of staying alive you can't just be your art and that's the dance man that's always the fucking dance it's tough right and i it's is like two guys that do this show for free yeah um and like we've do you know every week we're, we're fast approaching 100 episodes of doing like two hour plus shows every week um yeah it's i can tell you that like doing this and doing the other podcast psychoanalysis is what's kept me sane since mm-hmm. March. Like how much I look forward to doing the show every week. And yeah, like, you know, and we're grateful for the patron patrons who do put a little bit into our coffers and, you know, yeah. help support the show. But like, I got to tell you, like if I didn't have this show as a creative outlet during yeah this pandemic i like you said the gun in the mouth like yeah. it's not hyperbole at this point yeah. it, it yeah. feels like it so i i definitely and i think like you know i think all of us come from the same kind of like do it yourself punk rock background yeah. where no one ever expected to make money playing in yeah. bands or doing zines or whatever but you know you got to do it your way and you didn't have to answer to anybody else um it was it belonged to you at the end of the day Absolutely, man. And like, and I think that's the thing that's really tricky right now, because like, we, we live in this world, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, or whatever sort of like social channels you're on, like, this is a big old fucking campfire, you mm-hmm. know, and like, and like, I want everyone to have those sort of mo- moments where they have their place in the campfire to tell their story or tell their truth. And it's, it's tough, because like, it's like, there's so many situations where like, you just feel really, really lonely. And really, really, um, and this is getting, this is getting very real right now. And we're not talking about WF anymore. That's okay. but it's just like, you know, but like, but like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like, dude, like, there is so much value in what like y'all are doing. And there's so much value into like, what like, 
the filmmaker who is 19 year old is 19 years old that literally is just down in his basement with fake blood and a fucking rubber mask mm-hmm. making a movie like that is so important that like those like it's important that those people have a a um a, a um an audience even if it's even if that guy, that guy the 19 year old is an audience of 10 people that's so important because like it's just it's just so it's oh man like i don't want to live in a world where people can't find an audience of when 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 you know what you're doing would resonate with some other human being you right. know so yeah and i don't want to live in a world where the only thing you have to look forward to for art is like the the tentpole blockbusters of the yes world. you know yeah, i dude. want give me the weirdo shit because yeah. it's exactly where it's where the best stuff comes from is that stuff that is like fallen through the cracks of the margins. Well, and what you just said, Mike is so, is so important when you think about WF, it's like, I sincerely thought when we made that movie that we would find 20 people that would think it was the coolest shit in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I I, like, I'm not fucking joking. I literally told Jimmy um, that I was like, I was like, no one's going to like this movie, dude, but I don't fucking care because like, I love this movie. Right. You know, and mm-hmm. and that's what's crazy. Like you can tell, like I think people like y'all saw what I loved in this little story because you loved it too. But at the time, I was so down on myself, and I was so sort of like, people don't give a shit. Like this isn't the fucking Conjuring. You know, this isn't this isn't paranormal activity. But the fact was, like my my supreme um, adoration of these little elements. Uh, made it made it relatable to you guys, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and that's that's my only advice to fucking like young young horror filmmakers that are like like not sure if if it's even worth pursuing. It's like no no no, find what gets you fucking. I was about to make a very crass sexual joke, but find find what find what gets you really excited. You, you know, can make the, you can make yeah, the crass I, sexual yeah, yeah. jokes here. Well, okay, well then fine, find whatever gets you fucking rock hard, no matter what, there and make that movie. You know, like seriously, like, you know, like, or find whatever, uh, if, if you're, if you don't have a penis, find whatever gets you fucking dripping wet and like fucking make that movie, you know, like, because that's, I can fucking guarantee to you, there'll be someone that will be as stoked as you when you make that movie, as long as you do it with as much passion and ferociousness um, that you have inside you. Excellent. Excellent. I, I, you know, I, so well said. And look, I know in between the WNUF films, you have something else that is, you're just putting a wrap on right now, yep, correct? Yep, you have a yeah, new correct. anthology. Tell us a little bit about um, what happens next will scare you and when we're going to be able to see this. Well, Mike, you're in luck because <laughs> uh, so we have, um, we're premiering what happens next will scare you virtually actually. So literally anyone who's listening to this can go online and watch the movie um, along with the rest of the world uh, at the end of the month. Um, it will be at the Nightmares Film Festival. Um, so it's all online this year because of COVID. Um, Nightmares is having, um, I want to say the screening itself is probably 15 bucks, but then you can get like a all access pass. I don't know how much that costs. But long story short, so what happens next will scare you. This is a really interesting story too, because this is actually um, a, somehow this movie has become the most personal story I've probably ever made. It's basically about a, um, a group of clickbait journalists who are, are getting together on a, a Friday night in October to vote for the top 13 scariest viral videos, basically a Halloween themed listicle. And early on when they're voting on their top 13 scariest viral videos, an early entry into the night, unleashes a curse that brings back all the monsters from these viral videos into the real world. 
and they have to figure out like what's real, what's not, what monsters are actually in our universe killing folks now in, in their in their BuzzFeed style office. So th- this movie is uh, basically it's 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 sort of thematically about what was happening to me and and uh, and Jimmy as as we were figuring out what um you know our post uh, call girl post WNF world where we both sort of had our big boy jobs. And um, it was one of those situations where I was like, am I making movies just to stay relevant, quote unquote? Like, am I just doing sort of jazz hands on social media or am I actually making meaningful content? And the film was one of the situations where it's like, it's, it's, really, it's really a statement about like, you know, like, like, why do we do what we do? So it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard anthology film. It's uh, very much about like uh, internet subculture and just like the idea of like what gets clicks versus actually what like deserves your attention. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, it's going to be at Nightmare Film Festival uh, later this month. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link up to the film fest here in our notes because I'm looking at it right now. You can buy a pass for 125 yep. or single screening tickets for uh, like 15 bucks. And what's really cool with this virtual fest is you can actually, um, similar to what we're doing at Telluride Horror Show, is you can use the event event uh, live app and watch it on your television on like a Roku or an Apple TV, as opposed to like just watching it on your computer screen, which I think is really cool. Um, yeah, nice. I love that. And, you know, I'm one of the programmers and hosts at Telluride Horror Show. Um, I love that these festivals, I mean, I hate the circumstances around it, but like this week alone, there's like Salem Horror Fest. There's a night film festival. People that never would get to travel to these festivals are getting to take part of it. And I know in talking to a lot of my film fest brethren they're like we don't want to do this again like we want everything to be back in person but i don't know how you don't include some online component going forward just to like it doesn't have to be the whole festival but whether it's some panels or whether it's a select number of screening features and shorts um make it open for everybody and kind of spread the mm-hmm. word like so yeah, that's my rant on film festivals. Well, Chris, oh, Jerry, do you have anything else, man? I don't need to cut. No, no, no. I think that was perfect, man. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the hell out of this. As, as did I. So, so Chris, where mm-hmm. can folks find you online if they want to stay up to date on, you know, where they're going to see your next work mm-hmm. or just chat online? Where can we find you? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I, oh my God, I'm always so bad at like knowing my Twitter handle and shit like that. What I will start to say is like, I will friend or, um, uh, or like, t- like, you know, like encourage follows or, or anything from people on Twitter, on Facebook or Instagram. If you hit me up on Facebook, the only thing I will ask is just drop me a message and say, Hey, like I heard you on the pod and the pendulum, or just mm-hmm. tell me where you heard me just so I know you're not just somebody that's just blindly just adding every horror person. Right. Cause I don't really, I don't really flow that way. Um, but basically like if you're, if you follow me on Instagram, um, I think it's Chris La Martina. Um, uh, I think the same on uh, Twitter, but you'll find me on there or just search WF. You'll find me. Um, and then also if you want, if you are trying to get a copy of either of VHS or DVD of the WF Halloween sequel, um, there's a GoFundMe that's active still. It's really, it's mostly just pre-buys at this point now because all the other stuff has been uh, accounted for, but just like search GoFundMe WF, you'll find that. Um, besides that, I think that's, basically it yeah <laughs> well 
it's been a pleasure talking to you. Look, come back on, like pick a movie you want to talk about and just, just come on and fucking talk movies. So we would love to have you on because I'll yeah. be honest, you've made our job very easy tonight. It's fantastic. So. <laughs> Dude, I know you it. guys were like, I love talking to y'all. Like, obviously you're like incredibly uh, well-read or well-watched on the genre. And handsome. And I just, <laughs> and handsome. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say well, I've only seen you. Well, no, I, I know Jerry from Facebook, but I was gonna say I was like you are both very handsome. So, um, so I was gonna say, um, uh, no, dude, seriously, like it was such a joy. I mean, like, and, and the funny thing is, we barely talked about um, any other films. So if you guys ever if you guys ever do a slasher episode or a um, uh, Lovecraft thing, you need me on. I'll come and talk about Absolutely. Call Girl or President's Day, or um, and then if you guys are ever anywhere close to Baltimore. Um, you know, my shed in the backyard, we turned it into a tiki bar and I run an oddities oh museum in the back of a record store here in Baltimore. So uh, just hit me up. What record we'll store? So in the back of Protean Books and Records, I have a oddities museum called Dr. Gloom's Crypt of Curiosities. Uh, if anybody uses Atlas Obscura, it's on Atlas Obscura. Um, but seriously, like if you're ever close to um, the mid-Atlantic, come bother your boy. Absolutely. I totally, <laughs> that will be a road trip because I think next summer i want to take a road trip to burkittsville and spend a week oh dude in the blair witch woods yeah we're like we're like an hour and a half away it's not bad oh, at all perfect yeah. perfect and then um i want to come down like dead mechanical's not around anymore i think they were one of my favorite how, bands wait from how Baltimore. do you know dead mechanic they're on the president's day soundtrack because dead mechanical is one of the best fucking punk bands to come out of the yeah. uh late aughts early 2010s they're those two records are absolutely and I think of the singer's a lawyer now, so like he don't, yeah. um, so you know, obviously he can do law shit. Um, yeah. But oh my god, I saw that band probably about half dozen times, and just they blew me away every time. I loved Dead Mechanical. Dude, no, so. Dead Mechanical is great. I was gonna say, um, Mike, where are you? Where are you based? Uh, out a little bit south of Boston. Dude, I was like, my wife and I were literally just up there. We were up in Salem a week and a half ago. Oh man, so was yeah. That, yeah, excellent. I love. <laughs> Salem is my favorite town in the whole. Oh state my god, right I know, right? Yeah, yeah. Next time you're back up here, let's go get some drinks. So, dude, right. super into it. Jerry, Jerry, where are you? Uh, I'm in California. Okay, right on. Cool. In, in Los Angeles <laughs> or like what part? Yeah, yeah, about about two hours out, hour and a half. Nice. About. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, now I know. Next time, wherever, whether I'm out on the west coast or up the uh, up north, I'll bother y'all. Yeah, let's do it. So, Jerry, what do we do? We do you know what we have coming up next week, Jerry? I have no idea. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> it's been that week for me. So we are keeping our staff pick selections going. So we are going to be. Um, doing our own breakdown of the two Friday the 13th fan films, um, Never Hike yeah. Alone, and then this week's Never Hike in the Snow. And returning to the show is going to be the writer-director of those, uh, Vincent Desenti. He was on with us um, when we did uh, Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Um, and he is coming back on to kind of talk about both of these movies. And again, Vince is just awesome dude. Like got to know him out in Telluride and just really excited to talk to him again and talk about, you know, his highly anticipated sequel. And really what I think is, are, is I haven't seen Never Hike in the Snow yet, but Never Hike Alone to me is like better than a lot of the actual entries on the Friday the 13th franchise. So I'm really excited to see this follow-up. So he's going to be back on with us. Um, here are a few other things we have going on. So 
after that, we're going to be ca- capping off October with Hellfest. Uh, I think John Abrams from Daily Grindhouse is going to be joining us for that one. Um, so that's another. Also, like, set- really mm-hmm. quickly, I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, but also, right. the, the writer of Hellfest, Seth Sherwood, is as well. That's right. So we're going to be chatting with him as well to talk about, which I think like an underrated um, slasher movie and one that really captures that kind of, you know, haunted attraction feel. Um, We're putting the word out now. We're trying to get the band back together to do the drunken script readings where we're going to be doing the Dennis Etchinson Halloween four uh, unused script. And that is something we want to record in the next few day, uh, week and then post for you guys as a really kind of fun bonus episode on Halloween. Um, so if you're, you know, scrolling through your feed of Shutter and Netflix and Amazon Prime and Halloween night and you can't figure out what to watch, turn off the TV, put on the headphones and listen to a bunch of absolute dumb fucks stumble their way through the <laughs> script while they're way too drunk or way too high to uh, make it sound coherent. Um, Thank you for the inclusion with the high part. Thank you. Not a problem. <laughs> Not a problem. Um, All right. So... I think the only time I ever drink at this point is when we do the script readings. Besides that, I'm like pretty straight edge. It's just the script readings. Cannot do those sober. Absolutely cannot get through them. Um, So uh, we encourage you to rate and review our show. We've gotten a number of like really kind reviews lately and we really appreciate that it goes a long way i guess with the algorithm of having new listeners find us um and on that note again like our listeners have done nothing but help us spread the word and watching the show grow um is kind of mind-blowing to me and i really like i say i really appreciate it um what i would also really appreciate is your money not gonna lie, <laughs> absolutely. Here is the portion where we beg for cash. Um, we do have a Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com pod and the pendulum, um, it gives us the opportunity to pick up some new equipment for recording, some new editing software. Um, there are a few movies that we need to pick up. Like I know I would like shout Scream Factory has a sale right now. And I'm like, ooh, we're covering Urban Legend in November. I should probably pick up that Blu-ray, you know, as long as some other things too that we plan to cover in the near future. Your investment in us goes right back into the show. Um, So we have tiers at the $2, $5, and $10 level. All of those levels get you our Patreon episodes. Um, We just recorded this past Friday night. Jerry and I kind of did a show on 976 Evil. Um, We really spent the majority of it talking about here's what we're watching this October. It was a little bit more laid back from what we normally do, uh, but I thought it was still really fun. Um, You will get all of our bonus shows. You get access to our Slack channel and... I'm thinking I'm going to go ahead and order that like horror movie trivial pursuit and set up with our patrons, like something over Slack or zoom where we can all kind of play that together. The last thing I'll pitch, and I don't, this is outside of the show again, pandemic, haven't seen my friends miss them dearly. Um, I want to do some sort of like, this was inspired by watching like, are you afraid of the dark? I'm like, let's do like a zoom ghost story 
group. <laughs> all right, let's do our own virtual midnight society. So I had about 30 people respond. They want to do this. And I think we're going to try to do something at midnight on Halloween. Um, our first little kind of entry into that totally outside the show. Um, but just a way for people to kind of chat and get together right now. We'll have more details on that in the future. Jerry, I've talked myself to death at this point. What do you have to pitch right now? Uh, you know, more articles, more interviews. I interviewed an insane amount of people this week, so I'm trying to take next week off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have seven complete days of Friday 13th box set coverage coming. Uh, <laughs> working on scoring a new short, finding out in a couple weeks if I'm scoring a feature. So, uh, yeah, that's about it. Here's my question for you, Jerry. Because you had to yes. rewatch all of the Friday the Third. Well, had to like you had the pleasure of watching your favorite franchise over again with the new box set, correct? Yes, yes. Any new appreciation for Jason Goes to Hell? <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'll, I'm going to get there in a day or so. So oh, yeah, well, okay. I <laughs> probably think not, be, but we'll see. <laughs> I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. I just talked about that show in Halloweenies today, so. Uh, Friday the 13th, November, Friday the 13th, you'll be able to hear me once again defend the honor of the much maligned Jason. Uh, worm Jason. Jesus. Poor Jason. Poor Worm Jason. Poor <laughs> Worm Jason. All right, listeners, that is it. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Listeners, yes. thank you so much for tuning in. Find us over on Twitter at Pod in the Pendulum. Uh, pod in Pendulum. And we'll be back next week with the Never Hike Alone, Never Hike in the Snow. Uh, Until then, wear a mask, socially distance, wash your hands, and be safe.